The second reading comes <clears throat> from 1 Samuel chapter 18, and reading verses 1 to 30. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as his self. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merah. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David, and they, were told, they told Saul about it. He was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David... Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. 
now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realised that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders commanded to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. Thank you, Gary. Thanks, Jan, for those readings. They were fairly long, weren't they? Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to uh, be here amongst you today and to be able to open God's word. Um, there's so much in this passage that I've decided to do the sermon in a, in a different way. You, I haven't done this uh, before. There's a lot of visuals. For those of you who like pictures and, and learning with visuals, you're in the right place at the right time. But before I start, let me, uh, let me ask God to lead us in, in our thoughts. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts. We know that the relationship we have with you is, is strong because you love us, and we pray that you would help us to see what's in this passage and how different people react to your anointed uh, king, in this case, David, and uh, further on from that, Jesus. Uh, we pray, Father, this in, in his name. Amen. Okay. The big question I've got for us today, and I'm going to have to keep changing things, is do we love or fear God's anointed? Do we love God's anointed, Jesus, in this case, uh, David, or do we fear them? And we'll, we'll discuss both of those things during this, uh, during this uh, talk, uh, because that's what the passage is about. And uh, at the end of it, we'll need to answer that question. The first slide talks about uh, the main players in the background to this. Today we're dealing with the next chapter in Samuel, uh, the unfolding story of the early kings of, uh, of Israel. And you'll recall that the Israelites wanted a king so that they would be like all the other nations round about them. And God took this as a rejection of him as king, uh, but relented and actually granted them a king. But the king was not to be like all the kings around about. It was to be a king under God, under his rule. The man chosen for this job 
was a fine upstanding man named Saul. And we know from the story so far that initially he was very obedient. He did what God told him to do. But then he strayed. He strayed from what God said and did what he thought was going to be best. He figured he could add to God's instructions. And uh, when he was called to task, he tried to justify his actions. Uh, he asserted that his actions were at least, well, they were consistent with what God wanted me to do, um, the consistent with his plan, or so he thought. So what happened to him? Well, he lost favour with God because he disobeyed what God wanted him to do. And God rejected him as king, withdrew his spirit, so that he was left to his own devices. He was also told that neither he nor his descendants would continue to rule over Israel. Samuel also withdrew his support for Saul. So Saul's heart was lost to God. And we'll see as we read further into the books of Samuel what effect that had on Saul. Because he spiralled into an angry, bitter, resentful person who ultimately met his demise at the hands of the Philistines. So in that vacuum, God instructs Samuel to appoint a new king, someone who has the heart of God, someone who understands the relationship between the anointed king and God. And the selection process isn't the sort of selection process that we would go through in business or in enterprise where we get somebody based on merit, as we might be expecting. But God chooses people depending on how their heart is. David was a man chosen because he was after God's own heart, a man after his own heart. And his appointment of, as, as king is confirmed by Samuel. He's anointed although it's not publicly well known. So God begins, sorry, David begins his journey to become king, waiting upon God's timing. So as we enter today's story, we're at a point where all Israel is celebrating. They've had an unlikely victory over a big bloke called Goliath. The impossible to win battle has been won. The Philistine champion has been defeated. David's walking around with his head, which is not probably the best thing you could do in a, in a crowd. The army has been routed, they've been put to the sword and the towns have been plundered. There was great relief, you could imagine. I mean, this guy was standing up before the, the Israelite army for 40 days, threatening them. And the great relief and celebrations must have been all over the place. Now the passage turns to Israel and what response do people have to David's victory? Well, first of all, look at King Saul's reaction. At this point in time, he thinks David is absolutely fantastic because he solved the problem that Saul had with the Philistines. You see, the king of Israel had a responsibility to lead his nation into battle against their enemies. But what did Saul do? He didn't lead them. He made it known to, to the Israelites that if someone could defeat the Philistines, he would give them great wealth, he would give them his daughter in marriage, and they wouldn't pay any taxes. That was a big incentive. But that was really Saul saying, I can't handle this, 
It's not my problem. Let's see if I can find somebody else to do it. So in recognition of David's victory over Goliath, he gave him a high rank in the army. So on this, at this particular point, Saul was pretty happy with David, having got him out of a jam and, having, uh, and, have, and now starting to give him the rewards of his actions. Enter the scene, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is Saul's son, but he's also the heir apparent to the kingship of Israel, because in the normal course of things, the son would become the king. But Jonathan recognised something more than that. He recognised that David was actually the anointed king. He recognised that God was with David, but had left Saul. He was very insightful. He had the insight of a man who saw what God was wanting his people to see. So what does he do? We read that he becomes one in spirit with David, that he loves David as he loves himself. Not only that, he's making a covenant, a contract with David, and that contract is sealed in a very, very visual way. He takes off his garments. He takes off those vestiges of kingship as the crown prince would have, his tunic, his sword, his belt, and gives them to David in recognition of the fact that he knows that David is the anointed king. Jonathan knew that David would be king over Israel. Israel, the people of Israel, what was their reaction to David's uh, victory? Well, we're told that the troops and Saul's officers uh, were very pleased that Saul was that uh, David was given a high rank in the army. So they were going to be followers of a very good um, warrior. The women from all the towns of Israel, now I don't know how many towns there were, but there must have been several. After returning home from the battle where David killed Goliath, the women came out from all the towns, we read in verse 6 and 7, to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and timbrels and lyres, a bit like what Craig uh, read out for us in um, uh, Psalm 150. And they danced and sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. In the Hebrew, the, the words here um, translated tens of thousands actually says myriads, lots, more than. And we also read in verse 16 that all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Now when I read verse 16, it reminded me, uh, fast forward to Jerusalem when Jesus comes in uh, on what we celebrate as Palm Sunday in, in joyful celebration um, because the people of Israel were looking for a warrior to get rid of the Romans um, and I can see the tie up here where people saw David as the, as the saviour if you like to get rid of the Philistines and the third, uh, the third person who uh, uh, acknowledges David as the king has got a more complex relationship. We're told that in verse 20 that Michal, who is the daughter of Saul, one of Saul's daughters, was not, a, not only loved David, but also was in love with him. So that relationship was much, uh, much stronger in that regard. 
But as we look further into the passage, what I want you to notice now on the diagram is that the green line between Saul and David has been removed. What I want to emphasise now is that things are changing in Saul's mind. He's having a reflection about this guy who's getting all the accolades. And uh, whilst it appears to be calm on the surface, I think below the surface, we're having a few problems, or Saul's having a few problems with this, um, this guy who's very popular. You see, when the women came out and praised uh, David and Saul in the songs, they were praising both guys, okay, in a different way. But all Saul heard was, David is getting praised more than I'm getting praised. He's getting more attention than what I'm getting. He only saw the negative aspect of their praise. The fact that David is even mentioned in the same song as the king must have rung alarm bells. Because we read that he saw him as a threat. So David had gone from being someone that uh, Saul acknowledged as having great positive benefit to the community of, of Israel. Then we read, from that time on, he kept a close eye on David. So Saul is now out of step with David, he's out of step with, with, with God, with Samuel, he's out of step with the soldiers, he's out of step with Jonathan, he's out of step with the people of Israel, he's out of step. He sees David as a threat. And he refuses to give up his kingship. So here he's digging in, right? He's digging in, he's saying, right, bottom line is, there's the line, I'm staying here. So it changes from a green line to a severe red line. So in, he's still got the, the appointment in the army, but what we now see is Saul is becoming blinded by his jealousy and he's fueling, and that, that's fueling his fear. His regard for David has turned from um, adoration and, and, and the like to aggression, to anger, to hatred and a desire to get rid of this guy. You could even charge him with attempted murder. He threw two lots of spears at the guy and missed him. So if he was to be put up before a... Uh, uh, if, if the cops were called to this domestic violence situation, he'd have been charged with attempted... attempted well, you would have charged with assault, surely, but probably also murder, attempted murder. And he doesn't let David go. He keeps him by his side. Keep a close eye on this guy because he's my enemy. And what do they say? The old Chinese proverb, keep your friends close and your enemy closer. That's exactly what he was doing. He was hanging on to him very close by. Here we have a fractured relationship. This relationship between the anointed king Saul has fallen into an abyss. He's out of step, as I said earlier, with the Lord, with Samuel and with David and the rest of the, rest of the Israelites. He is being left to his own sinful devices, his own sinful self. He was afraid of David. He saw his, um, his, him as a threat to his kingship. And in verse 8, we read after the, the, um, the women praise David and Saul, what more can he get but the kingdom? He's after everything. You can see how Saul's eyes were totally blinded by what was going on. He was so focused on David's um, threat that he couldn't see the wood 
for the trees. So here we have a diagram which shows all of that anger and aggression. He's got a fractured relationship with all these other people. He's angry, he's jealous. And he's failing to do what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to be the king. He's supposed to be leading his nation. And he's not. He's just focusing on getting rid of this guy, this guy David. Everything consumes him. He becomes obsessed, totally. And he attempts to trip David up. He figures, oh, I'm not going to raise an arm against him. I'll, I'll send him out to battle and let the Philistines deal with him. But that's not successful. Um, he sends him out an impossible task to, to capture 100 fore, I can't even visualise it, 100 foreskins from the Philistine army. Comes back with 200. Um, whatever he does, he succeeds in. He succeeds because he is following God. Every attempt to discredit or harm David comes to nothing. At the end of the passage, we read that David met with more success. The more he sent him out, the more success he had. Saul now realises that the Lord was with David and his daughter Michal loved him. But instead of accepting it and repenting, he gets, gets more and more afraid. You see how he's spiralling down into this fear? How because he's separated from God and left to his own devices, all he has, the demons in him are controlling, his, are controlling his thoughts and his actions. What I think he has is a hardened heart. That's one description that the Bible uses. And if you recall where that comes from originally in Exodus, where Pharaoh is the one who is described as having his heart hardened against uh, the, um, the requests of Moses. Um, if we look back, he set himself against God's plan for, for the, uh, the children of Israel. He set his heart, he, every opportunity he had to relent, he um, rejected. He didn't let them go. In the end, he relented, but then he had second thoughts, so he chased them. And what happened? He was consumed in a very dramatic way. So, in a way, Saul's heart has been hardened. The evil spirit that God sent is really leaving you to your own devices. If you haven't got God in your heart, your heart is going to go that, in that direction. So here we have Saul the king living without reference to God. So how are we to understand his situation? Well, we've got a few clues from this passage. He's a lonely, bitter, twisted shell of his former self. His God has rejected him. He is possessed by an evil spirit. The people think much more of David than they do of him. David can do no wrong in the eyes of, of uh, his people. He shows true leadership. The leadership that would normally be expected of a king. If you like, he ticks all the boxes. Saul's own family have, have deserted him. Jonathan identifies with David's passion for God. The people of God, he delights in David. He loves David. He understands the relationship between himself and David and David and God. Saul's daughter, Micaiah, loves David, protects him. Further on in Samuel, we'll read that she actually stands up for him in front of a dad. He takes, she takes David's side. She gets a bit lost further, further on in Samuel, but at that point. So Saul is by himself. He's isolated. He's chosen not to side with the anointed one of God, but set himself against him. And because he's done that, he's also set himself against God. 
He chooses not to work with David, but to fight him. And in doing so, the end will not be pretty. So what is it in his head? What is it in his heart that's doing all of this? Well, one thing came to mind as I was, as I was um, pulling this together, and I thought this would be helpful. Because I think there's a direct correlation between loving God and for those who love him to keep his commands, uh, the obedience to or the rejection of God's commands is how, uh, as to how to love God shows up in our lives as a battle of wills. Now, just bear with me as I try and, and work this through. Because it's part of human nature to find the will of one human being being against the will of another. You get that happening all the time. And that happens in households, happens in families, happens in workplaces, happens in churches, happens in sporting teams, happens all over the place. Governments, of course. Think of a two-year-old, if you can, or if you can remember. They discover very early on how self-satisfying it is to assert themselves and see what happens. Often they come up against the parent or another sibling. Um, what do they call it? The terror is it the terrible twos that they call? Yeah. Battle of wills that's experienced between teenagers and their parents. Hey, man, we've got teenagers in their family at the moment. Isn't that a battle of wills? It's a battle of wills. Um, exasperates the, the teenager and the parent, by the way. But it doesn't stop. Two-year-olds become teenagers, teenagers become adults, adults become older adults. And in adulthood, we stand our ground too for what we think is right for us uh, at the expense of somebody else. Uh, take, for example, the battle of wills between the Russian president and almost everybody else. He's standing his ground. The battle of wills causes small conflicts, medium conflicts, and huge conflicts. And at, the, and at, uh, and at its very worst, death, destruction. Trying to get your own way, being willful. And I think David's fallen into that. Not David, uh, sorry, Saul's fallen into that. Saul has fallen into that battle of my will versus God's will, which is the next point that I want to make. The Bible speaks of a similar conflict of wills that is of an order far greater than we'll ever experience on earth. So whilst we have a battle of wills amongst ourselves, there's a battle of will, our will against God's will. The will of God for his people as the creator and sustainer is for our own good. His will for us is for our good. Opposing God's will are our will. From our very beginnings, Adam, Eve, we were dead set opposed and set against the will of God. We wanted to do it like Frank Sinatra said, my way. We have wills that are centred on ourselves and not on God. And this, I think, explains why we so often get into conflict with one another. Because if our wills were aligned with God's will, we'd all live in harmony. And we know that that is almost impossible. And it's because we're all seeking to assert our own wills that we're in conflict. We fight, we sulk, we whinge, we wrangle to get things the way we want them. And sometimes it's easy to pick what's happening and sometimes it's very, very subtle. Um, because we don't like being told how to live. We don't like being told at all. So then, how are we to respond to God's anointed king? In this case, the response of the people to the anointed king David. And in our case the anointed king, 
Jesus. As I was studying this passage, I was thinking not only how foolish Saul was to be doing what he was doing, but it also struck me that here is an example and a glimpse of what it would be like if God actually abandons you. What would happen to you if God abandoned you? If God simply lifts you to your own devices, to your own demons, if you like. If we were left to figure things, everything out for ourselves, we might end up the way Saul did. Bitter, twisted, angry, alienated from God. Cannot see the wood for the trees. Because without God, our sinful nature, the one that we have inside us, would take over all our reasoning, would take over all our love, all our peacefulness, and fashion us into the angry, conniving, there's a lot of words here, deceitful, selfish, jealous, fearful, dangerous, and self-centred people that we actually are without God. We would revert to who we are as Christians. We try to keep a lid on this as best we can with God's help. But every now and again, it bubbles to the surface, doesn't it? We drop our guard and something happens. We blow our stack. We say things that we regret. We do things that we regret. We are not unique. We are sinners. But the difference to us is that we're saved. What we need to understand is that if God is good and he wants the best for us, the best for us cannot be found outside of our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus and the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives because all other relationships hang off this. The only way that we can experience what is best for us is our relationship with God. Next slide, please. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees who were trying to trip him up, what was the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, the greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. And how are we to do this? How are we to love God? How are we to love our neighbour? Well, Jesus gives us a clue in John 14. He says... If you love me, keep my commands. And whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now, it sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? It's both simple and profound. Next one, please. Uh, the gospel of Jesus is the announcement to the whole world that the will and purpose of God is that all things should come under him, under Jesus, because Jesus is God's anointed king to whom he has given all authority. So it follows that every human who's not aligned with Jesus being Lord is in conflict with the will of God. Saul set himself against God's anointed king, against God's will, and we do similar in the way that we sometimes conduct ourselves. Most of us try to wrangle a bit of our own will into the will of God to create a weakened version of what it means to be a Christian. We play the margins, hoping that God doesn't mind a bit of our will on the side. But the Bible doesn't portray God as having a shade of grey. He's either black or he's white, about sin, about obedience. So Jesus is the future king, the anointed one, heralded by God. He's a descendant of David. He's the one who perpetuates that dynasty. And he came to deal with the sins of the world, as we read in the, uh, the Luke passage earlier. 
God has chosen a king for us. So what's our response to be? Will we be like Saul and decide we know what's best and spiral out of control? Or will we respond like Jonathan and hand over the future that we thought we had to Jesus? There's no in-between position, no sitting on the fence. Because Jesus says in Matthew, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and minds. We pray that we will let go of our own selfishness and willfulness, hand them over to you and let you guide us in everything we do. In his name we pray. Amen.